0: This choircast Podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden reexamines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the Parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com.
1: Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God.
2: This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody.
3: Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat, and with me, as always, is my uh, my sidekick, the the Robin to my Matt man, the the... Uh, what other? What other? Nah, I got nothing else, man.
2: The Winnie to
3: my poo. Yes, the Winnie to my poo. Say Winnie to my poo, John. Winnie to my poo, John. See, you've messed. Winnie, do it again. Try, Winnie, try to, it again. Winnie to my poo, John. Anyway, this is the podcast called "This Is Not Church" because if it was church, you would have left and at this point run screaming by now. I'm like no. but we're here with a with a with a new guest. I think you're in for a treat. I think it's going to be awesome. He's got a book out that is ridiculous and ill-advised. Oh, wait a minute. That's the actual title of the book. It's amazing. So uh, let me introduce you real quick to uh, Rail Sidebottom. Uh, Rail is a storyteller from the American underground, writing about skateboarding, film fiascos, and dropout culture across three decades. Starting out in documentary film at the NW Film Center before moving to Los Angeles, Rail has worked as a story editor for multiple production companies. His screenplays and original pilots have been optioned and shortlisted for many com- uh, competitions, the Sundance Pilot Lab, Shore Scripts, and Austin Film Festival being a few. His latest book, Ridiculous and Ill Advised, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Wow, awesome! Welcome to the podcast, man. What's up? Hey, great to be here. How are you guys doing? We are doing well. I, I speak for myself. I, I'm doing well, John. You know right? I'm doing well. I mean, for the-
1: having having endured your most recent beardectomy, uh, how's everything going, man? You okay? It was sad, actually. I sat in the barber's chair and he cut my beard off, and it all fell on my lap. And I'm like, I look down. And I'm like, there's my beard. And he thought I was upset that my beard, the the hair was in my lap. So he's like getting this little vacuum. I'm like, no, just give me a moment. This is sad. <laughs> this is a sad moment. Just I'm just acknowledging the amount of hair I just had cut off my body. Are, are you still running your hand through your
3: phantom beard that's no longer yes, there? Yep, I do. like, damn too short, damn too short. I know. You know, you know it's how all right,
1: like, man. The kids have like security blankets or uh, my security blanket was just holding onto my beard as I'm like sitting reading or watching TV, that's, that's gone now. So now right. you're just, you don't even know what to do with yourself. I don't, I don't, sad.
2: I had, really is. I had a beard for a while. I got to talk about my beard. Hold yeah. on, hold on. Yeah,
3: no, talk about your beard. I'm, I'm sorry, I look at a clean shaven dude. I'm like, he doesn't know what we're talking about. He can't relate.
2: Hey, I lived in Humboldt County. Look, there was a time <laughs> when not only did I have a beard, looks like about the size of yours, Nat, but I also did the, uh, the chin beard, so nothing on the lips or the upper cheeks, just down right here and then yeah, like 1830s style. And (laughs) uh, it was great because I uh, ran a movie theater, a very professional movie theater, and so I'd wear a suit with that beard, and anytime someone asked to see the manager, they would send me the manager, and the first person, the first thing that people would inevitably say was, are you the manager? <laughs> I'd say yes, I yes I am. How can I help you? They're like they're like, You look like a logger that stole an outfit from a locker of a CEO somewhere. <laughs> I do miss my beard. Oh, that's all I'm clean shaven now, but the uh, beard
3: again someday soon, I'm sure. John's John's gunned for promotions at work, so I've given up on all that. I don't I don't give a shit anymore. So let her rip. That's all I gotta say. But Hey, so I was just going to start off by asking, you guys, you, you and John know each other. You used to work together. Is that right?
2: We, we did. Maybe kind of give yeah. us a
3: little background on how y'all, how y'all came to be acquainted.
2: I was working for Costco for about a decade. And I worked at several Costcos. And uh, one of the ones I worked at was in Humboldt County. And I think, John, did, were you the one that approved my transfer to your store? Is that how we met over the phone or something?
1: I, I might have been involved in the phone call. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have approved your transfer, but I would have been involved in you coming... No, you, started, wait, you, would, you, would have, you would have disapproved this transfer? I don't have the authority to approve or not approve transfer. Oh, I thought you were like, I would not have done that.
2: <laughs> if, knowing what we know now. Yeah, yeah no, we worked together at uh, the Costco there in Humboldt County for a number of years through COVID, in fact. We got to watch yes, a lot of antics yes. in Humboldt County during COVID at Costco. Oh,
3: my gosh. <laughs> antics. To have, to have had the privilege of working retail. During COVID, oh, must have just been a special treat.
2: As a writer, yeah. I'll tell you, it was the golden years. Because <laughs> <laughs> right away. With, so here's the thing. My wife is a medical professional. And so she told me, she said, look, you need to start wearing a mask at work. This is real. It's coming down. And I don't, I don't know. So I trust her. I say, okay. So I remember I wore a mask to work and I was the first one at our branch. (laughs) And people mocked me so openly. They're like, that's not real (laughs) or that's not a big deal or you don't need a mask for it. Or my favorite was, I would never do that. No one's going to make us do that. And I said, okay. And then everything changed. Yeah, never say never, right?
3: It's funny, my, my, my son was going to college at the time Anyway, but he had he had a guy he went to school with who was a Chinese national, and had just gotten back from. In fact, he was from an area that was close to where the the what was the damn place it was from? Oh, um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, so he was, and had gone home over Christmas. This was uh, six or eight months before it broke out, and uh, my son, like like two weeks after Christmas, got the sickest he's ever gotten in his life. Like my son doesn't go to the doctor. He went to the doctor. They tested negative for every known influenza virus, but they still—I mean, it still took him like two weeks to get better. And then he later told me the symptoms were like, "Holy shit, I think I had COVID right. before we even knew that that was happening." So it was a—it was a strange time. But John, I heard all kinds of stories from John. Yeah. about all of the uh, all of the abuse that you guys had to endure. Oh my gosh. From. Ass, you know, assholes who didn't want to wear their masks. I mean, yeah, yeah.
2: Or the guy in the Joker mask We're like, okay, you know what? That's funny. Yes, but also no.
3: Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> my, my, my favorite was all the guys with like their little homemade masks or the, you know, or they just like pull a hoodie over their head and be like, that's my mask. I'm like, eh. now, oh man. Mind you, I went through this in Texas and nobody gave a shit about it in Texas. Right. And, and I live in a fairly smallish West Texas town, not by Eureka standards, but, you know, 100,000 sure. or so. And man, for the first, Eight or nine months, this thing we were just about immune. We don't on an interstate. We don't have a bunch, you know what I mean. And then all of a sudden, it hit us hard. And we, you know, we went from having you know handful of infections to hundreds of infections and hundreds of deaths. And it was like, oh, y'all still think this is fake? And they were like, yeah, still bullshit. Like yeah. so, okay. But we're not <laughs> here to talk about COVID. We're here to talk about <laughs> awesome books and screenwriting and apparently tripping on acid and skateboarding. So let's uh, let's uh, let's <laughs> talk about that, man. Let's uh yeah
2: talk us through a little bit about this 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 book man I'm curious. In this book I attempted to chronicle one of my first great adventures. I've been very fortunate to meet extremely interesting people. I think that uh even as a as a young man I was always interested in stuff that was out of focus for everybody else. You know what I mean? Whether that was people or cars or just a certain way of seeing the world. I don't know exactly what that came from, but I was always drawn to different kinds of things, things that were different from the normal things that everybody liked. And that was true with music and culture and everything. And so this is a story that tries to chronicle that year, 1990 that I spent on the road with curb painters and, uh, what it meant to me and what it meant to me going forward. It took me a long time to actually sit down and write the book, but, uh, I'm glad I did because, you know, skateboarding, I feel like one of the things about it that I think is most important is none of these things are mutually exclusive, whether it's skateboarding or taking drugs or religion or economy, like all these things, they can kind of all weave into their own kind of tapestry. Whatever it is that you got that you like to do, all those things can be the same thing and tied together in a way that you can make your own and make your own world out of. And that's what they were doing well before I met them. And so when I found them, it was not a hard uh, sell <laughs> to get me to come on board. Like a culture, I, I really
3: appreciated it as a kid. So I'm, in, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s too. Uh I graduated high school in 89. I got kind of sucked into the whole like skate punk thing. You know, like my music aesthetic was, was very much in that vein. Fuck yeah. um, Those kinds of late 80s. You know skate punk bands, all of that stuff. And me and my, you know, I was never a good skateboarder, but I liked to skateboard. And John's and John and I had a really good friend named Mike Losh. Remember Mike? Yeah. Um, yep. And we were in band together. He was just the most soft spoken. Just if if you didn't know him, you'd say this guy probably goes to you know Temple every week and you know loves his. It was just this soft spoken, very nice guy. But man, he was a hardcore skate punk. He'd like his record collection would make you cry. Uh, it was that good. And he and I went on, a, went on a band trip, well, orchestra trip, and we took our skateboards with us to San Francisco. And our only goal for that trip was to ride our skateboards down Lombard Street, down the you know the the, the eight were nine consecutive hairpin turns. of curviest wor- street in the world, yeah. curviest street in the world. We're going to ride our skateboards down Lombard Street. We got to the top of Lombard Street and then realized it's fucking brick. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way you're skating down that. Okay, no. so we ran down it screaming with our head, skateboards over our heads, go, and just ran all the way down. it. but we're like, we were so disappointed. But I ended up going to like really cool record shops and the hate, you know, and the hate and going through. Anyway, just talking about it makes me reminisce somewhat about that that culture. Will yeah, I
2: wasn't in the city. We were down in Morgan Hill, which is about an hour, a little over an hour south of San Francisco. So we were still fortunate enough to be in the Bay Area. So once we had driver's licenses, it was on. You know, and we were in the city as much as possible in the East Bay, going to shows, going to punk shows, going to any kind of show. I think that's one of the things that I love so much about those times was it doesn't seem like there was less culture. But at the same time, it seemed like culture wasn't as exclusive. Right. Like I knew a lot of people that did not like the Grateful Dead, but they'd go. It was mostly to buy drugs. But you know what I mean? They would go and hang out. And. People didn't have qualms about going to a jazz show or going to see the dead Kennedys or going to see fucking whoever. You know what I mean? It just, the only thing that we worried about was just going. You got to go. You know what I mean? And we went all the time. And the, the unifying thread to all that was skateboarding because the Bay Area was fucking nuts for skateboard. Like you said, San Francisco, San Francisco is a tough town to skate, man. It is steep and it is Very gnarly, tough. but there were ramps too. And they, there was a ramp. What was that called? The, um, Oh, boy, it was by The Dish in uh, San Francisco. Anyway, some guy had built a huge halfpipe in his backyard. It was right in a tough, tough neighborhood where they had a little skate spot called The Dish. And uh, we had to seek it out. You know, these things weren't readily available to anyone. A lot of the places we skated were privileged information, and you had to find the right people, talk to the right guys, or simply just be good enough that when someone saw you skate, they felt comfortable sharing that information because the last thing people want is a bunch of fucking posers to show show up at the ramp. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously, you know what I mean? So you better bring your fucking A-game and some fucking dirt weed because (laughs) not everybody gets to skate here. You guys better fucking step it up. You know what I mean? (laughs) And the Bay Area was like that all the time. You know, everybody had attitude. Everybody was cool about it. You know, it was... Tough as well. You know, there was a lot of violence going on at the time. All the fucking stupid Nazis were trying to raise their heads up, you know, and everybody kept knocking them back
1: down. And it was wild. <laughs> the Bay Area was a really wild time, man. My best connection to the Grateful Dead, unfortunately, is when Jerry Garcia died. So I had a friend who lived in Chicago and she had come to visit and she was a major deadhead. She had toured with the dead, or you know what yeah. I mean? She went from show to show to show. She followed them. For over a year, and so she's at our house when Jerry Garcia dies, and uh, so it's you know it's a it's a sad time. I'm not a big Deadhead fan, but I get it. You know this 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 is of course it's a moment, right? Something something huge is happening. The loss of this person is huge, uh, but I have to drive her back down to SFO to get her on her, her uh, get her on her flight home to Chicago. Unbeknownst to all of us, and I made the mistake of not taking the, the 19th street exit, I went to downtown San Francisco and drove and drove right into the parade for Jerry Garcia the memorial yeah, the memorial day so we I was I was in bumper to bumper traffic in downtown San Francisco for the memorial parade for Jerry Garcia, and all I can think of is we're not going to get her to her flight on time and This was one of those moments. It's like, is this a real friend or not? Because when we get to the airport, obviously she missed her flight. I had to front the money. My wife and I had to front the money for her to get a new ticket to Chicago. I was like, this is the moment. Are are we real friends or not? Is she going to pay me back? (laughs) And, you know, True to form, because and she, she is, and she did. We never
3: talked to her again. No, no. <laughs> true to form, she no. did. <laughs> no, she's, I was hoping she to she this day. No, 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 that'd be a lot
1: more funny story, <laughs> wouldn't it? would yeah, be better. True to form, because she is one of our best friends to this day. She paid us back, but you know it was a weird place to be, right in the middle of downtown San Francisco, as all these people are mourning the death of this guy. Yeah. and you know, Ray and I have talked about this. They weren't a good band, no, but. They had built something around them that was bigger than them. And they knew that. Right. And they always honored they always knew
2: that and they honored that. And the funny thing is if you go and watch historically video interview footage or just chit chat footage of him, Jerry Garcia, talking and kind of just shooting the shit with people. <laughs> he seems like a funny motherfucker he's he's got a fucking dry (laughs) sense of humor man he says shit that i think a lot of people are like what the fuck but everyone around him (laughs) they get a sense of humor i just got that vibe that he was just a really funny acidic kind of guy no pun intended but uh you know (laughs) they had a lot of fans that were much more intelligent Than them. And that was the weird thing about going to those shows in those parking lots. You would run into every stripe of human in the parking lot of a Grateful Dead concert. You would see tenured professors. You would see rednecks, you would see loggers, you would see goth kids, you would see ravers trying to sell DMT. You're like, what's DMT? It's like 88. You know what I mean? Like, there's just all <laughs> kinds of fucking weirdness going on in that parking lot. And, and by the way, like the, the, the subculture that they propped up took care of itself. You know what I mean? There was people cleaning up after shows. There was people taking care of their friends. There was a whole group associated with the Grateful Dead called the Wharf Rats. I think it's the name of the one of their songs. But um, it was a sober group. It was like a NAAA group that went to shows. And they all got together in the venues before the shows to have a meeting to support each other so they wouldn't get high again. Now, I don't know how the fuck you go to a Grateful Dead show completely sober <laughs> but they did it and there was it was hundreds strong you know what i mean so people found a way to work through all their weird shit with that band which was just a weird you know shit
3: band. <laughs> what i always thought was endearing is is that they were never more than what they they didn't claim to be any of those things anyway you've never seen jerry no. garcia walk around touting himself as an excellent guitar player i think he was a tremendous songwriter sure. actually. i think he did write some pretty darn good songs um but but and they were good musicians they they weren't, they weren't untalented. It wasn't like the, there was a lot, there was a, it seemed like there was a scene in the, in the mid eighties or so where, where a lot of punk bands prided themselves on not being good musicians. And i being actually pretty Correct. like demonstrably bad musicians, you know, yep. I know three fucking chords, and I, there's another, you know, or that, you know, the whole album together of, you know, every single song is 25 seconds long or something all the, like SOD or one of those, one of those bands. But, and almost like they, they like, they looked down on, on the more accomplished bands. That's oh, like attitude,
2: yes. Yeah. that's a punk attitude
3: for sure. But when we talk about Jerry Garcia, I can't help but like draw a parallel to like Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson for me is that same kind of guy. Like the culture he's built around him is one that transcends country music. You could not like country music at all and still totally. be like, but hell yeah, I'd go to a Willie Nelson show. Like I would like I would hang out with those guys because he surrounded himself with, with a bunch of really interesting and eclectic people
2: yeah i so. wrote a few years ago i got some pretty good traction on a pilot i wrote for a pitch i pitched an idea for an eight-part uh, limited miniseries and it was called before we were dead and the idea was it was a film or i'm sorry a miniseries about like the last three years of life of those guys so th- the three years before when they first all met to the very first show as the Grateful Dead. So basically it's all those guys coming together in 62, hanging out, playing in jug bands and playing banjos and taking acid that they stole from the Menlo Park Vets Hospital and all this weird shit. Going into 63, you know, there's all this other weird cultural stuff happening, but they're in this like, they're like in this isolation, this vacuum, because, you know, the beat scene is over. It's dead, right? The beats have either died or drifted off into obscurity or alcoholism. You have the folk scene, I guess. You know, you have Joan Baez and you have kind of folk music, but there's no real counterculture yet. And the Grateful Dead were there, and they were going to light the fuse, but they didn't really do it. They had to have it kind of, the baton handed to them by the beats. So the idea was, it's basically The Grateful Dead as teenagers. Eight episodes. And the idea was, the very last scene of the very last episode was their first show as The Grateful Dead, which was in a pizza, pizza parlor in San Mateo in 1965. And because of all the research I did, I found that it was very, very interesting. The time they lived in, and the things they did, and the way... Um, they came to understand the world they were in and re- the way they reacted to it musically. It was really, really interesting. I love doing research on stuff, and that was one of the pilots I wrote where I'm like, "Man, this would be fucking great!" But it's hard to uh, it's hard to pitch stuff. It's hard to get to the right people, and it's hard to um, make things happen. Obviously, but you know, that's what I love doing is telling stories. And one of the great things about stuff like that is doing the actual historical research. Like uh, one of the great things I found out is that uh, Jerry Garcia was one of the guys that walked out when Bob Dylan went electric at the um, folk festival, he went electric at, but a bunch of people booed and walked out and Jerry Garcia was one of them. And three years later, he's playing <laughs> Dylan songs on an electric guitar. <laughs> right.
3: uh, Dylan, you know, always a little bit ahead of his time yeah. or, or a bit of an iconoclast anyway. I mean, it seemed like he, if anytime someone tries to pigeonhole, I remember seeing an interview with him once. He's like, I'm not anybody's spokesman. Like the second you turn, the second you try to turn me into the face of something, I'm done with that thing. So he's like, not going to be that. Um, say what you want about Dylan. I'm a, I'm a Dylan fan, but oh, yeah. um, I always sort of appreciate that about his personality and his unwillingness to be hijacked for any cause. Um, even when it came to his his conversion, and I think that was one of the things that pushed him out of Christianity was Christianity's immediate attempt to hijack him for their cause and go, Oh no, look at us! Hey, we got we got Bob Dylan now, y'all. Like, uh, and he's like, Well, nope. I'll do my three records and I'm out. I'm not doing this Christian thing anymore. <laughs> so, Three and done. Yeah, the first one was pretty damn good. Second two were uh, not, not 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 great. What, what <laughs> was the title of the first one? Because that's the one that has uh, long long train long uh, long train running. It's, it's something like that. Damn it! I just said I'm a Dylan fan. I can't remember. Long back
2: train. No, it's not long back train. It's that's uh,
3: a that's a brother song. That's uh that's the song everyone one thinks is uh, without love.
2: Without love.
3: It's something with a train, son of a bitch, I can see the record album cover in my, in my it's in my collection.
2: Have you guys seen that Netflix film, The Rolling Thunder Review?
3: Yes, yes, I did.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, that one I think really captures that element of the road that I think those of us that take to the road and want to spend time out there in the world without a deadline, you know what I mean? Without a deadline of having to come back to the job or whatever, like, like if you can find a way to keep going on the road, that film is such a great textbook, how you can do those things. You know, obviously not at his level, but he brought Alan Watts along. He was bringing in people from other things. They were playing at bingo parlors. They were playing at big hall. I mean, it just <laughs> it just went so deep into that like rootlessness of American culture. You know what I mean? The, the desire to just forever live on the road, you know? And I think the great thing about <laughs> that documentary is there's many great things, but at the end they show since that, Tour. They just showed a list at the end credits of all the shows he's played since then. And it's like 10 full minutes long of every show he's played because he never stopped. He wasn't lying. He's like, I'm never going to stop touring. And he took a couple breaks here and there, but he's still going today. He was played in Japan last week or something. Eh?
3: I just, I actually, it was interesting. I just had a chance to see his son. Oh, yeah. So the Wallflowers went on tour again and uh, man, enjoyed the heck out of that. But I don't know why that came up. I just thought about it. But um, Jacob Dylan is a pretty interesting feller. Yeah, he is. That documentary he did with the... Echoes uh, in the Canyon, right. Yeah, right. Echoes yeah, in the Canyon. But that, an extension of that whole aesthetic, though, like you said, that whole sort of ruthlessness, that sort of Jack Kerouac, I'm just going to wander around and do stuff. And there's got to be something sort of universally attractive about that. There is. Because it resonates with everybody on some level. Like, I think we all realize we can't all do that, but we'd all sure as hell like to. Like, that sounds like a really cool thing.
2: Going back in history, too, historically, there wasn't much wandering. There was the nomadic hunter-gatherer. And I think as we came up into kind of modern history in the last couple thousand years, I think the only real time people traveled was either to move away from where they were at or for religious purposes. You know what I mean? People that were... Right,
3: pilgrimages or something like that. Pilgrimages,
2: exactly. And I think it's only been in the last, you know, couple hundred years that people have actually, you know... And I think America kicked it off big time in the late 1800s. I mean, America was the Western expansion and all that stuff, you know. But I think people that made it to the West and they're like, where to now? (laughs) So you just turn turn around and go the other way, you know. And I think that's the great thing about America is, I mean, as much as it pains me to say it, the great American dream is the automobile. It's our bane and it's... uh, it's a blessing, man, fucking having a car and having the ability to just travel and go forth wherever you want. Turn left, that's a dirt road. Fuck it, turn. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you can go wherever you want, you know? There's a lot of open land out there. America has a lot of open land. Joplin, four-wheel drive, and roll, totally, man. Totally, man. Go down, try, drive Route 66
1: one day. It's a hell of a lot of fun. You get you get Kerouac on the road, right? You have, uh, what's the, uh, who wrote? By the way, the record is called Slow Train. I, I yeah, I looked up too. Slow Train, yeah. I just needed you to know that. So Kerouac with <laughs> all the road, and what's the uh, the the acid? Uh, what's the bus one?
2: Electric Kool Aid Acid Test by Ken Kesey. You're talking about Tom Wolfe,
1: yes. Yeah. So I want I want to circle this back to your book because one of the things that I uh, that I noticed about your book is you're very much influenced by the beat by the beat generation. I can tell that because you could drop this book into that generation and you wouldn't skip a beat. I mean that's. That's the feel I get. I don't know if that was done on purpose, that whole idea. of You mentioned Kerouac in the book.
2: Yeah, I do. Actually, yeah, my aunt gave me a copy of, uh, not that book. It wasn't on the road. It was Dharma Bums.
1: Yeah, Dharma Bums. Yes, yeah. So I don't know if you, you know, being from Humboldt County also, I don't know if you remember Jim Dodge, who was a professor at Humboldt State, he was the closest that I ever came to connecting with the Beat Generation. He was obviously after that, but his books like... Fuck. He was
2: still the real deal, yeah.
1: So his books though, obviously brought up and, and reintroduced a, a, a generation of Humboldt State University students to the Beat Generation. and I feel like that's what your book can do or is going to do. Is it's going to then reintroduce this idea of the Beat Generation within the late 80s and 90s Because this idea of saying, fuck it, I'm just going to go. This might be a bad idea. I don't know, but I'm just going to go. And I'm going to do what... I'm just going to go and I'm going to hang out with these people and let's see where we go. And that's a that's a thing that specifically my generation was absolutely opposed to, right? You have to get a job. You have to settle down. You have to make sure you have your, your 401k in place. Which I bought into Well I think every generation is opposed to that in general. <laughs> but I but I bought but I bought into that, right? Hook, right, dance right, right. yeah. thinker, right? And um, to the to the I think to the detriment sometimes of our soul. Yeah.
2: Well you bought into it because you didn't know any other way. That's the that's the, the hook, right? Like they don't give you any access to alternative information. So prior to the 60s, there was no real alternative information, especially for kids living in the middle of fucking nowhere. And that was a great thing about punk rock is punk bands struck out for everywhere. They started playing everywhere, right? Like I know you got a lot of punk shows up in Humboldt County that came through from Oregon or up from San Francisco. We got it in the Bay Area. And these were people that came from all over the place. You know what I mean? And the information became more readily available. I mentioned in the book that I found a copy of uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. And Maximum Rock and Roll was nuts because then you realize if you pick it up, if you didn't know anything, all you have to do is just a glance through the pages. You realize there are hundreds, if not thousands of people networking and communicating outside all the systems we know to be real. So there's now there's a new system, right? And then you have (laughs) the names of the bands. So you're like, okay, I have never heard of any of these bands. But if there's a bunch of girls that are on tour from Iowa called Gay Witch Abortion, I want to see that show. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, I really want to see that show. And then they have help and want ads for uh, people that want to go on a road with the band. If you want to come along, we can't pay you, but we'll put you up in a hotel. We'll have a place for you to crash. We'll provide food. And we just need someone to help lug our amps and these small towns that would put out these advertisements, hey, we have a longshoreman's hall in Longview, Washington. and people want to come, we'll pay $150 for the night. We take half the door, you know, all these different things. And you realize, whoa, America is fucking ripe for the picking. You just need to know where the orchards are, you know what I mean, of counterculture. And that maximum rock and roll, that was just a skull splitter for me. I was like, what? And to me, one of the weird things was, and I talk about this in the book, As close as I was to my friends, I'm a Scorpio, I'm outspoken, I'm very social, I love making friends, I love having people around, I love being around people, I'm just a social person. And yet for all my friends and acquaintances, nobody wanted to take that next step. People like to go to a show, they like to skate a little bit, we'd journey around the Bay Area, we certainly had good adventures in the Bay Area. But as far as like lighting out for the territories, people were like, nah, I'm good. So I had to find that, you know what I mean? And I was very fortunate to find Adam and Eve and the blessings of that curb painting culture, you know? Because that's a way, because that's the trick, right? How do you make money to keep going? Because like it or not. Man,
3: yeah, so talk about that. You you dropped that curb painting thing a couple of times and there's bound to be a few right. people who are like, okay, what? Having read a little bit of your book, I understand what you mean, but talk about curb painting
2: Let's talk about curb painting, right? So America is filled with suburbs. Suburbs are being built all the time, people wanna move to the suburbs, it's just a big, big deal in America. And all suburbs have to be paved and they have curbs, and the curbs require address numbers. Sometimes required by the city, sometimes not. People put them on their house, sometimes people put them in hard to see places. And something that the people that I ran with figured out pretty early on, I would guess the 80s, was that um, it is difficult to see address numbers on houses. Either the numbers aren't there, or you know, shrubbery or foliage has grown up around it and you can't see it. <clears throat> and so they came up with a real easy fix. They made a flyer that said, a little flyer, quarter sheet, very small, said, uh, notice, large reflective address numbers are being painted on the curb. Statistics show us, <laughs> This is a fun number that we made up. (laughs) Statistics show us that 78% of our homes are inadequately numbered for night use. We are using a brightly reflective paint so that your police, fire departments, delivery people, mail person, et cetera, can better find your home. And then here's the hook. The cost of this service is $8. If you want this service, write your address number on the back of this flyer and hang it in a window that is visible from the street. We will be by tomorrow. So without having to knock on the door, without having to do any kind of pitch, the pitch is the flyer, right? We would tape it to a door, never put it on a mailbox, that's illegal. (laughs) Tape it onto a screen screen door or a door, a little piece of tape. And we would sit around for hours cutting up flyers into quarter sheets and taping them because you got to prep them. You know what I mean? You're walking your tape, you're, you're not ripping a piece of tape and putting a piece of tape on each flyer at each door. You're ready. Door, 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 door. So you would spread out. And the Southwest is full of beautiful aggregate concrete. (laughs) And I've noticed this because I've tried to paint curbs all over the country. Aggregate runs from extremely clean and smooth to just choppy as fuck. And (laughs) choppy choppy, fucked up asphalt uh, and uh, concrete works fine when you're, you know, just doing paving and it's for vehicles and stuff like that, but you can't spray paint onto it. It just doesn't look good. But, aggregate in the Southwest is smooth and clean. And so when you put that stencil on there, if you hold it down, right, it looks fantastic. You have to have some skills with a paint can, but we did $8 a house. And it's a low enough number that no one balks. And you've already made your $8 without pitching it at all. And people will either be home when you paint the curb So you just go up and say, hey, we just painted the curb. It's $8. And they'd go, great. And they'd give you the eight bucks and they would either want change, you'd always have change with you. And if they weren't there, we made another little flyer that said, hey, your address number has been painted. $8 is the cost. Please leave check or cash in an envelope on the door. And we would do that constantly. And we so rarely didn't collect very few times people just wouldn't pay. They were either went on vacation maybe or they're out of town or they just spaced it. We knocked on the door. they were out to dinner. And after two or three tries, when we're traveling from town to town, you're not going to wait around for that last 24 bucks. You know what I mean? If you've made Because we're talking pretty great numbers in the late 80s, early 90s because you could get a peddler's permit for 40 bucks. So if you roll into town with a school bus full of eager kids that look... Passable. (laughs) And you go door to door. We would make a map and we would highlight photocopies of the map and say, okay, you two, this is your highlighted area. I want you to put a flyer on every door in that neighborhood. You guys, I want you to put a flyer on every door in this neighborhood. And we would highlight with these photocopies and then tell everybody, and we'll meet at this, you know, Taco Bell right by this park in four hours for lunch. And then we'll do the rest of the afternoon. And in that way, we could flyer thousands of houses, because the Southwest just blew up with suburbs in the 80s and 90s. And so we would do sometimes over 1,000, 1,100 houses in a day, and while our returns were certainly not 100%, they weren't zero either, and it really came out to about, I would say eight to 10% return, But when you fly 900 houses and 10% say they want it done, so that's 90 times eight, that's $540 for the day. And your overhead is gas, weed, (laughs) and food. (laughs) Because that's all we spent money on. We camped on BLM land. We've slept in parking lots. We just roamed from town to town and uh, kept a map of places. Like if you saw new construction, you would tell everybody else, hey, man, check it out, new construction. Because as soon as those houses go in and they're done, those people want their curbs painted. Historically, curbs have been painted by all kinds of civic groups, too. You know, you have Freemasons, Elks, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, a lot of people do it. And sometimes we would get stopped. They would be like, nope, Boy Scouts paint the curbs in this town. And We say, okay, and you move on to the next one. But it was extremely lucrative because it was mostly cash. And you could just make a ton of it in a week. And when you wandered into Texas and you would go to places like San Antonio and Austin, you could really, really clean up. And it was great. We would make tons of money and have enough to live on for a while. And then we're like, Hey, let's take a break for three weeks. You know what I mean? And so we would take a break for three weeks, work for a week, take a break for a week, work for two weeks, take a break for two weeks. It was not hard work, but it was definitely, you had to have a certain level of commitment. A lot of people would show up, you know, we'd pick up hitchhikers or whatever. And they, some people didn't last. Some people lasted the weekend, you know, but it was extremely lucrative. I just can't emphasize enough how much fun it was to be let in again, like with Maximum Rock and Roll, be let in on the secret that, oh, you can make money however you want. You don't have to go sit in an office. You don't go have to stand somewhere. You don't go have to have to put on a collar shirt and tuck it in and not wear shorts to work, you know? You can kind of do whatever you want, however you want to make money, as long as you're honest and you're forthright about all your information. And we were. And so that was pretty much it. I will say that the paint was just spray paint, but we added... The reflective glass beads that body shops use to blast metal to take all the paint and primer and everything off if you put that if you put that in a salt shaker and you shake it on the paint when it's wet it will adhere and it's reflective. So when you drive by at night it does shimmer And when you shine a light on it when you shine a light on it it really because people are skeptical they're like ah reflective huh And then you're like trust me take a look at night you know you can't really show them in the daytime. And you would go by the next day and you're like, hey, man, how about that curb? And they're like, holy shit, I can't believe it. <laughs> it really flashes when you shine the lights on it. And that's what it was for. That was it. It was just a <laughs> weird little niche thing that people discovered. And I got drugged along for the better part of a year with this family and group of friends that uh, didn't mind working hard and liked to party even harder, you know?
3: So that was, you said, throughout the Southwest that, right, Arizona, um, New Mexico, you, you said, you said, you said BLM. That's like Bureau of Land Management, like public property, right? Or like Bureau of
2: Land Management, free land, right? Ranch land, yeah, open open land that you can graze on, you can sleep on, and um, yeah, if you are hip to that stuff, you know where all that stuff is, where you can camp for free and stuff like that. So that's cool.
3: I live in Texas now, and uh, have lived for twenty plus years now. But San Antonio and Austin are like two of my favorite places to go in Texas because Austin, in particular, is one of the few places I can go and for a moment not forget that I'm in Texas like it is it is a, a little slice of bohemia like right in the middle of of all of this other stuff and uh Austin's a great town but that's that's when my wife and I found that because we're from Humboldt obviously you know John and I we're related and everything so uh <laughs> um, coming from the west coast especially the you know Humboldt County is a, it's its own little thing man uh you know as well as anybody um it's a movie, that
2: shitty aggregate you can't paint curbs in Humboldt that's right well yeah
3: because uh, yeah um, but <laughs> excellent weed. So, I mean, you can't, yes, you, can't down on that, yeah. you can't fault them on that front. But we, uh, so John and I grew up, like one of our favorite bands we used to listen to in high school was Mr. Bungle because they were local and they were, you know, they were, first of all, they were just a great band pushing the envelope, but they were one of the, they, and they were responsible for bringing a lot of other people into Humboldt County in the 80s and doing shows. Like they had these concerts out in the middle of nowhere. And it was always so weird to me, like you said, some some lodge, or something some you know for fraternal order somebody at a space and there's some all these hall yeah yeah some little hall some all these all these guys would show up from all over Humboldt County and converge on this place and it'd be just the most eclectic weird mix of people it was it was so much fun it's so much a part of my my adolescence that I mean as, as John and I got a chance to interview Trace Bruins from Bungle for the podcast and uh we're hopefully doing some more stuff. but anyway yeah just a just a just a cool scene. So as you guys moved around then making your money this way, what, so what, what came after all of that? You did that for a while, I suppose. And, and then,
2: yes. So, so for me that wrapped up, you know, I had done my time and I felt like, uh, I had, um, exhausted all my avenues in that world with those people. I definitely took the skills with me and I Kurt painted in a lot of different places and, all the knowledge, so you know you can you can drive through a neighborhood and look at the aggregate of the curbs and be like, nope, we're not painting here. It's just going to look <laughs> right, crappy. Yeah. You can't charge people that. And then uh, I took that from there, and then I left there. And I, one of the first places I came after that was Humboldt County. I came to go to College of the Redwoods and ended up getting a job there, sticking around for a long time. Went through my first marriage and uh, left there after my first marriage and uh, headed to Portland looking for another good road gig. And I got an audition at the Tears of Joy Puppet Theater, which is a national touring children's theater company. So you spend most of your time on the road, so I auditioned, and I got the job. And so I spent the next several years of my life from then, late 90s into the early 2000s, touring for Tears of Joy Theater, doing folktales from around the world. So, you know, Coyote Tales from Native American culture, doing Anansi the Spider from African culture, like just a lot of uh, folktales from around the world. And got to tour and live in a van with different people for months and months and months at a time, which I really loved. And uh, just kept trying to do those kinds of things, played in bands, toured around, not as far reaching with the bands as with the touring children's theater. The theater, the Tears of Joy Children's Theater was really an amazing company. They're no longer around, unfortunately, but they made it a long time. They made it probably 45 years, and that's a long time for any theater company. They had all their contacts in place when I started working there, you know, they had their booker, they had their booking department, they had all that stuff. And you would just get thrown into a show in the summertime, they're like, all right, you're going to start rehearsing, you know, we do Perseus, you know, it's a marionette show. They're like, here's your touring partner, here's your tech person, and you guys are going to rehearse in the space for the next six weeks, the show. And then when school starts, you're taking it on the road. And there was, uh, at that time, with Tears of Joy, there was three main touring companies. And you got one of three, you got the I-5 corridor, you got the Pacific Northwest, or you got the Southwest. And so the Southwest kind of ranged into Texas, but mostly was Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico. And then there was the Pacific Northwest, which included Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, uh, a little bit of Wyoming, reaching out here and there. Uh, All these shows were primarily at schools although a lot of times they would have them at auditoriums because they had smaller communities and they would bus in kids from several school districts or several schools for one big show. And those were the best. Because when I'm talking about puppets now, I'm talking about these big puppets and we wore masks and costumes and played drums and instruments and did music with it. You know, you have to really put on a big show. These are big shows. They weren't little hand puppet shows. And the, auditorium shows were by and large the best ones you could get because when you have like 700 screaming 8 to 10 year olds <laughs> it's like <you're laughs> we did a show in San Mateo, California and it was um it was a Nancy the Spider and we had big puppets we had a big uh, a big uh elephant puppet we had this big lion puppet we had a snake Anansi Nancy was, I was, I played a Nancy and they booked, busted all these kids to this auditorium and had to see like 800 to 1,000 kids. It was fucking nuts. And so we're backstage. And my tour partner, Brian, is like, man, because the kids, they couldn't quiet them down. You know what I mean? There's like kids from different schools. So there's different instructors like, quiet over here. These all these kids from St. Ignacio Elementary. Shut up. And then over here, there's kids talking, you know. And <laughs> my friend Brian comes back and he goes, man, I think today is our Van Halen moment are you fucking ready for this? I'm like, fuck yeah, dude, let's, let's do this. And we went out there and we would just rile them up and they're kids' shows, they're fun, they're funny, you know what I mean? There was a lot of fart jokes, a lot of gross humor and it drove the kids mad because they got to watch adults do something that they'd never seen before and that was the real joy of working for Tears of Joy was like curb painting and like punk bands, it's exposing young people to another way of living in this world, you know? Yeah.
3: And, and I would imagine those, those folk tales from around the world, and also exposing them to, you know, another way of looking at the world and let, you know, like, exactly. Zach, I, I, kids are great, man. That's, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that I, I think would, would be a lot of fun, man.
2: I will but. say this if you're in a white van with three people and you pull up to an elementary school don't sit in the van for too long go right in and introduce yourself <laughs> go no right dude. in no. like, yeah. hey, so we're, the, we're the puppeteers we're going to sit on the edge of your parking lot and have a couple of cigarettes just so you know and they're like okay we saw you pull in uh, okay. <laughs> because as you guys I'm sure know with uh, musicians and, and theater and stuff like that I know John you have a background in that kind of stuff one of the things you don't want to do is advertise who you are when you're moving stuff around so our vans never had any kind of logos or branding on them. They were, because we had a lot of sound equipment we had a lot of puppets that were one of a kind and very big and very expensive to build and very, very uh, articulate. And so, yeah, we always drove around an unmarked white van. So had to be careful. <laughs> had to be careful.
3: <laughs> <laughs> way too many heartbreaking <laughs> stories of musicians getting ripped off. And, you know, I, 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 read, I saw a story recently about Steve Vai being like reunited with a guitar that was stolen, you know, 20 years before. And, but, you know, it, it wasn't the first or last one he'd have stolen. But, um, yeah, so I can understand want to be a little nondescript. But, as you mentioned, pulling up to elementary school in a nondescript white van is
2: probably problematic. <laughs> when you all smoke sticks, you uh, got smoke
3: coming out of the van and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, come to my puppet show. Stop it. Stop. It's <laughs> just no <laughs> puppet jokes. Man, I tell you what, I so far, man, I'm just impressed. I, I, I really like the way, and this is going to be more technical, but I like the way your book is laid out. I just, I like the sort of rock and roll aesthetic of it i like this little little inserts of screenplay it looks i mean uh, it, it's cool man it's a it's a cool book i love your cover to my wife my my wife actually opened the package which she has what to do when things come to the house and she's like what the hell is this i'm like i don't know it looks like an awesome book so the, co- the cover's great the stuff inside of it is man it's fascinating i am I I, I I can't wait to do more than just skim it i've John's read it Because John's always Very very good about Yeah
2: No I I was married to that idea For a long time Theo Ellsworth The The illustrator That did the cover And the back cover He uh, I lucked out man He had some time And I was able to Get him to do a cover for me I've been a big fan of his work If you haven't seen His graphic novel Capacity Mm, Okay uh, Capacity is something else And he was in Portland Around the time I was living in Portland When I was working For Tears of Joy And I found his book At a comic shop there And I've always been a big fan. And as it turns out, uh, when I'm back in Missoula, Montana, he also is in Missoula, Montana. In fact, right down the street. So I reached out to him. He had the time. He did this cover for me. I'm super stoked on it. As you said, it's just something else. And it really speaks to how I felt in that year, like going from just kind of a wide-eyed, young, itinerant wanderer to a monster, spray painting and skateboarding across the Southwest.
1: What's cool about the cover too is until you read the book, there's so much in this cover that doesn't make sense to you until you read the book. the half The half monster face, right? Which, That's on purpose. I'm, yep, yep. Right, but when I first saw it, I hadn't read the book, right? So I'm just like trying to figure out what these two these two fa- sides of the face mean, right? the The person on the skateboard up at the top, the person filming, the person spray painting a curb with a very specific a very specific number, by the way, which uh, yeah, I love. six six six. The
2: number of the Kerb painter.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this doesn't make sense until you read the book, and it's like you you see it. It draws your attention. It's really cool. Then you read the book. Then you go back and look at the cover. You're like, oh shit, I missed all of this. The Starry Night, even right? The Starry Night. You there's multiple times where you talk about laying out and watching the stars.
2: I still to this day love sleeping out under the stars. In fact, my wife and I are going to hike the Appalachian Trail back east this summer and we'll be spending months outside sleeping on the ground, in tents, in hammocks. We still love it. We still love being outdoors. And um, that is our upcoming most recent adventure. It's called Take a Flippin' Hike is our YouTube channel. Just so if, you, if anybody wants to check it out, I'll do a little plug for that, we have a YouTube channel called Take a Flippin' Hike.
1: I have, a, I have a friend uh, who also worked with me at the Eureka Costco who, who hiked the, uh, the Pacific Trail. What's it? That's not what it's called. What's it called? PCT. So she, she did a whole uh, Instagram of her as she was doing that. Uh, and I ran into her just the other day and I told her about you doing the Appalachian Trail. And so she wants me to send you your information as soon as I got it. So I'm going to be sending that to her because she wants to follow your trail as well. I, I'm super excited to watch that as you guys do that.
2: And I do comedy, as you know, John, I'm a stand-up comic, uh, and I've been doing a lot of stand-up comedy for over 10 years now, uh, doing a lot of clubs, nightclubs, bars, restaurants, stuff like that. And so what I've done to incorporate uh, what I love into another thing that I love is I'm going to be doing a comedy tour while walking the Appalachian Trail. And what that means is I'm calling it the 2023 Walking Stand-Up Tour. Oh, that's, and that's awesome. I have one show booked at a bar in New Hampshire. And from there, I will be performing in parking lots, campgrounds, shelters, <laughs> people's tent if they want. Uh, and also, you know, traditional clubs. We're going through a lot of small towns in the mid Atlantic and up into the Northeast. So yeah, I would be doing a comedy tour by foot. There will be no show I do this summer that I didn't actually walk to and uh that's kind of my way of incorporating you know things i love into other things i love so that'll be a lot of fun
3: man uh, i'm i'm very very interested to see how this plays out with your uh with your book maybe be an option uh, i know you can't talk about it yet but in broad strokes you can say there's interest right
2: absolutely i have been approached uh by more than one person actually which is uh, really great i you know you never oh, bidding war It's uh, yeah, totally. My agent, I think, is working on that. So I think that when you write something and someone shows an interest in a way that's beyond just like, hey, I like your book, hey, I like this. Someone wants to do something with it. You get that imposter syndrome right away. You're like, somebody's fucking with me, man. Nobody likes this book, man. This book is dumb, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It's that thing that you that reflexively you go to because you're always worried that no one's going to get it, no one's going to understand. And, you know, people are going to mess with you. But in fact, it has turned out that there are a couple very interested parties in turning this into... I mean, my publisher, <laughs> when he read it, he was like, so, you know, this is a movie, right? This You wrote this as a movie? I'm like, yeah, of course. And like you said, obviously, Nat it incorporates a screenplay that I wrote for a monster movie called The Amarok, which I talk about at length in the book. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to... uh tell the story I wanted to tell and the way I wanted to tell it. And I was very fortunate with glass spider publishing that they let me do it the way I wanted to. There's, I got a lot of advice from other people about don't put recipes in there. I mean, I took out a lot of recipes. I know there's a recipe on there, like how to make blood, how to make artificial limbs and rip them off. You know, I also had tons (laughs) of recipes for stuff like how to burn a loser. um, And I think, you know, that and the screenplays and kind of the mishmash of things into a novel, memoir, screenplay, hybrid. I couldn't abandon it. I couldn't leave it behind. I, I I, really, really believed in it. And so it's really, just really gratifying that people are taking an interest.
1: I, I find that throughout, you know, as we talk to different authors, I feel like the, the books that connect with the people the best are the books that where people are like, fuck it, I'm writing the book that I want to write that tells my story. And I don't care if you don't like it. I'm not writing it for you. I'm writing it for me and the people like me seem to resonate more than people who try to write books that fit into a cookie cutter idea. So this this whole idea, I mean, there's just over and over again, you hear these stories about people who wrote the book that they wanted to write, and then it resonates with people that they weren't expecting it to. I can tell you, it it resonated with me to the point where I'm like, Damn, I, I missed out on a lot of really cool stuff that I really wish I had done. Right. And it's like I lived in this like very isolated section of of, of California with not a lot of access to this this type of world. No, I'm not just don't get me wrong. I love the life I had. And we got to do some crazy shit, you know. But I'm like, I'm reading your book and I'm like, damn, I I, you know, I didn't get to go to see a lot of shows. You know, it was a lot of for me. It was a lot of dirt bike riding and getting in trouble. I love dirt bike riding, but I'm like, oh man, so much fun,
2: (laughs) especially drunk at two in the morning on a mini bike.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, I just I just had this conversation with someone at work. I don't I don't remember who it was. It was one of our coworkers, and I was like, there was just this underwritten rule by the CHP that if we stayed on the avenue of the Giants, we could ride our dirt bikes all over the place, and they 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 just didn't care. Just don't go on the highway. Stay on the avenue and we're not going to pull you over. And so, you know, we did all this crazy shit. But, you know, it's within that world that we lived in. And I read your book and I'm like, ah, there's just so much more out there that I'm not saying people should like abandon everything they do. I I think they should at least be... (laughs) (laughs) I think they should be at least open to the idea that the world they live in isn't the only option for them. And that's what I get from your book.
2: What's crazy to me is with social, social media and the internet, people have exposure to all these kinds of things, and they still don't do anything about it. They just observe it passively through a screen, you know. And I don't necessarily worry about that, but I do think that um, people do miss a lot of opportunities by spending too much time just uh, looking down, you know, instead of looking around. Yeah, you know, that ministry, that ministry show in Texas was fucking nuts. I, I can't say enough good stuff about the band Ministry. They came oh, out. Man. They came out of fucking left field with that industrial grinding fucking punk noise. Well, what's out. weird is a couple of years a couple of years before that they were like, uh, they were
3: electronic. I mean, they were exactly. they, they completely transformed. Like, I hated Ministry, and I'm like, who the hell is this? Like, I I don't know what their the first one that I be, the first album I became aware of with them was Psalm 69, and I was like, okay, what the hell is this? Like, this is new. This is different. Oh, this is Ministry. No. But that's a that's an outside-the-box thinking, like, hey, that whole industrial metal scene was was interesting, man.
2: The early 90s, I mean, everybody was in the fucking pool, right? We had fucking Lollapalooza. You had just <laughs> right. crazy-ass fucking—you watched Liz Fair <laughs> open for fucking iced tea. What <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> oh, fuck, man? It was, it was an absolute shit. melee. <laughs> this is good shit, dude. I watched fucking Chili Peppers get upstaged by Beck. I saw Beck cover them— after them, the song they did in their set. He covered their song and I you did can
3: tell
2: <laughs> people were like, were like, Is he being a dick? Yes, that's awesome. Yes,
1: yes. Beck is the, Beck <laughs> is the bomb. I love Beck. <laughs> and uh, you know,
2: like I said, everybody was in on it. Like, there were so many different kinds of things happening with music, and there was no internet of things yet, and so everybody was listening to CDs and tapes. And it was just, you know, you kind of listened to everything in one way or another. I mean, there was so much garbage. There's always garbage on the radio, and I think most people figured that out pretty early. Um, if you want to find good good radio good music, you listen to college radio if you got one. Right? Exactly and trade tapes with people. We lived in that small town of Morgan Hill and I remember we had a buddy who had a better radio signal than a lot of us and he could record the punk show on Sunday nights from the local radio station up in San Jose. We couldn't get it. But he would record a tape and then if you brought a tape to school, he'd make you a copy. And then you could look that up and they would they would announce on the radio, they would talk about the band's label, and then you would get your mom to drive you to a record store in San Jose, and you would find one of those records. You'd look on the back, and there's the address, and you would write to them for a dollar. They'd send you a catalog. And then you'd look up all these bands. You didn't know if they were. You're like, Napalm Death. That sounds good. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to order a cassette by Napalm Death, The June Brides, and Nurse with Wound, and we'll hope for the best. Surely one of the three will be good. Yeah. And all three were great. It was like noise, like abstract noise, grinding death metal, or like spoken word over like the Smiths or whatever. You're just like, this is all good. It's all good.
1: Well, and, and Rail, <laughs> Rail I mean I, I told Rail this as he as he was moving away, moving out of Humboldt County. One of the one of the biggest things that I miss working with Rail on a day on a daily basis was as we got close to closing. Well, actually, even before that, Rail would go over to the computers, and he would, and he just pick some random song list or playlist, and it was like some of the most ridiculous bands that I had never heard of. I have a catalog of music in on my phone now, basically because Rail played some weird ass shit, and I got to listen to it and that's what I miss. I mean, if I have to say, I mean, well, I miss, I miss our conversations and rail, you know that of course. I miss our conversations about movies and music and politics and all of that. Right. I mean, those conversations are some of, were some of the best for me of you and I just looking at people and going, <laughs> what do you think's going on in their brain right now?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. There's so much good music out there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're right. It's,
3: well, and people, you know, the 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 beauty of a of a well crafted mixtape. Oh my gosh! Is, yeah, uh, is lost on this generation. I mean, I, I remind John that when I was I joined the military, Greta, his wife, used to make me mixtapes. Do you remember that? I, I don't, don't remember that. I you, oh, you don't remember that. She sent no. me. Oh man. Oh, maybe I shouldn't talk about that. No, but she said, <laughs> "You don't talk about an eclectic." she would send me a cassette and she, your wife is always really thoughtful about stuff like that, but she would, you know, yeah, you need a taste of home. And so she'd send me something with some stuff from Eureka and whatever. And there'd be a couple of cassettes in there and it would be the most eclectic mix of music. It'd be, you know, a song by Manhattan transfer followed by, you know, a song from cats followed by an outtake from a jerky boys cassette followed by <laughs> oh, yeah, <the> jerky boys. <laughs> <No>. oh, boy. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I just, and I had and I'd listen to those things like over and over and over again. Cause the, none of them, it was like, like every, it was like a, like a, like a 90 minute non sequitur. Like none of it made sense. It all just kind of went from one to the other, but, but that's the beautiful, that's a beautiful thing of being exposed to all those different kinds of things is like, you can have an appreciation for, you know, vocal jazz and, you know, Norwegian yes. death metal and, yes. you know, whatever, you know, whatever else that, you know, and, and and figure out that there's there's more out there than top forty pop for God's sake.
2: Yeah, when you say figure it out, one of the things that makes me think of is I was very fortunate to have a couple friends, two or three good friends, who had incredible taste in music, and they introduced me. There was two women and one man, and they all they would play stuff that you'd be like, "What the fuck is this?" And they're like, "Oh, you've never heard of Thinking Fellers, local 282? And I'm like, no, I've never heard of a band called Fellers Union Local 282. And then they would play the whole album and you're like, every song on this album is so good. And you would just look up all these weird bands by, you know, going to record stores. You, that's where you look stuff up. And you didn't know how to look stuff up unless you had a list of titles. And I had friends who, for whatever reason, just had, Fucking great taste in music. Turn me on to Jonathan Richmond. turn me on to the Sun City Girls. I mean, and from there it just spirals outward like that weird umbrella, right?
3: Amazing. I, I suspect that we will hear more from you, man. That's uh, that's my hope. Anyway, I hope, I hope everything that absolutely and that that's going on comes to fruition, and we get to watch this thing play on a on a screen somewhere, whether large, medium, or small, and uh, get to see you uh, translate to some I, I think it, like as I saw, like I said, I think it it would be. Awesome. I you obviously wrote it that way with that. Hopefully that with that in mind. So I think that'd be great.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
3: And obviously you're a uh, you're a natural storyteller. I like that. Thanks. And you, I always like having people on the podcast who uh, who, who can uh, who can carry their weight, man.
2: Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.
3: Because John's not going to John's not going to do it. I mean, John didn't shit.
2: say shit today. I know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, just I think it's the loss of the beard. I think it's got to it's have has got to have. It is. It's like like it's like Samson when he cut his hair off. He's like, oh, all of a sudden he's
2: just. He's just, look at him. He's just, he looks sad. John, I I feel for him. Hey, uh, before I go, I was wondering, do you guys mind if I read one of my recipes out of my book? Please do. Oh, man, that'd be great. So one of the things we do in the book is we decide we're going to make a monster movie. And one of the things you require as a prop for all monster movies is blood. Now, when you're living in a motorhome, a school bus, and two vans down by the river with a bunch of your friends, and you don't have a lot of money to make a bunch of blood, you have to come up with something. So this is from uh, chapter 20. Original recipe, fake blood, a concoction of desperate economic times, serves four to six. Number one, be cheap. Think big, but if you recall your old monster magazine recipe, if your recall of old monster magazine recipes doesn't work, and there's no library nearby to reach out to, go to the Farmington local Suoper Market. That's right. That's how they spell it. S-U-O-P-E-R, Suoper, because it's owned and run by Latinos who screwed up their giant sign initially, but to their surprise, it became a draw, and it's an awesome market in any case, and it would ruin it if they tried to fix it. So yeah, go to Suoper Market and hit the baking aisle. Step two. Don't get distracted by the Pandaria on your way down the main aisle Just go find the Azucar They're probably stock Karo syrup, but any liquid sugar is fine Buy it all because you'll need it 66 cents a bottle Grab a couple cases of cornstarch as well Number three, damn, Suoper Market has it all There's an actual hairdresser in the back Giving haircuts and styles as people shop for food On the shelves just outside her little glass-walled back room You'll find hair supplies Grab cheap red and black hair dye Again, buy it all, several bottles of each to cover all the gruesome gore you'll be creating and then some. Number four, buy two giant plastic buckets, two whisks, the largest plastic spoons or ladles you can trash and throw away, and grab duct tape and disposable latex gloves, at least several pair. Number five, down to the mix. At your campground table, in a giant bucket, mix several bottles of syrup and whisk away as you slowly add red and black hair dye at intervals to make the color you believe is best. Corn starch should be used sparingly as it tightens up the blood quick. Minimal amounts according to overall volume. Water thin for spraying on a person's face, thicker for pooling around a dead corpse. Go with your gut, keep it dark. Prepare your desired mixture as close to the rolling of cameras as possible. It's a mess so you'll want to get it mixed and runny right at shoot time. The weather, of course, is wildly fluctuating. For us, it was early fall on the Colorado Plateau. So depending on the time of day you shoot, it could be 80 degrees or it could be 20. A good mix can be a struggle to hold. As blood tech, it is your task to get people excited when they see your work. It's the backbone of the monster movie when life becomes death. And if you get it right, bravo. Well made.
3: That is awesome. That, is, that reminds me of my olden days. Where I had a friend that had a subscription to Fangoria. <laughs> and we and we poured over every oh man every every issue that came like oh this is amazing and for like two seconds we all want to pick up artists you know yeah, Like
2: everybody like you read when there's no distractions when we were kids i remember reading the back of the same record like fucking 40 times and you're reading about the producer and the drum t- like all that shit whatever details because there was nothing else to read and I do not know about you guys but i was a voracious reader and so i would read like fangoria magazine like whatever it was i would just absorb it and just take every piece of information away from it and to this day that's how you retain all that weird trivia you know yeah.
3: We were, such, we, were, we were so starved for uh, for stuff to read. We'd sit at the breakfast table and read the back of the damn cereal box. Right. Because it was something to do with HBO. And they used to put stuff that was interesting on the cereal boxes.
2: It would be little jokes. Little, new, kids, new kids read
3: it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, what do I do. Well, I, well uh, we did have a TV nearby. So, and sure as you know, hell didn't have a little
1: television in my pocket. So we read the back of cereal boxes, right, John? Well, and, and Rail and I talked about this at some point in the, the past about. The loss of standing in line to buy the records, right? Mm. Uh, Well, so that community, that that idea of having to stand in line to get, you know, like the the uh, the the new GNR album or whatever, right? Whatever band you like, you stood in line with a bunch of people that you didn't know from all different walks of life, and you had conversations about each other. Now you just now when an album comes out, you just hit the little download button in, in Apple Music or whatever. You, you're not standing in line. You're not hanging out with people you would never meet if you weren't standing in line to buy a record. And the, what's the first thing you did when you bought the record or the, or the CD? You pulled out the, the insert and you read it all. I mean, it, that was how you got to know these bands, right? That's how. And I, I feel like there's a loss of connection because of that.
2: Yeah, strangers don't talk to strangers anymore. You know, I used to talk to strange people all the time. right? And I still and it, gravitate towards that. I But I'm an outgoing person, you know. I, I like to tell the story of Kurt Vonnegut real quick that he shared and so many people have shared, which is um, when he tells his wife, he's going out to get a stamp. And she goes, why don't you just buy a whole thing of stamps and then you don't have to go out and get a stamp. And he says, if I do that, I don't get to walk out the front door and walk down the street and watch a guy Walk his dog and take a shit in the bushes, and I don't get to see the cute girl walk across the street who's buying hula hoops apparently for somebody. And I don't. And he gives her this long laundry list of the people he talks to and the people he meets and the things he sees, and that's why he takes that walk to go get a stamp because he forces himself to go out into the world constantly and interact with that super awesome thing that is called humanity.
1: You know, I love it, man. Well, and and. You know, and I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke. I, I really. Yes, want you me. are. Go ahead and blow smoke, John. But that's one of the things I took away from the relationship that you and I had when we worked together is you were someone who was willing to get to know people regardless of their, of, of where they came from. Now you and I might have a laugh about the stupidity of those moments later, right? But you had, you had the wherewithal to live in the moment, let the people be who they are, unless they were being overtly me, right? There were times where it was time to like, yeah, this isn't going to be okay. You can't say that kind of shit. But if they were just weird and out of out of this world, we had that moment, then you and I would have these laughs and these comments about, did you see that guy that just walked by here? That's a draw for me. Yeah, that's a big draw. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the things I miss about you being there because within the department where the computers are, I now hear you know Charlie Daniels, Devil Went Down to Georgia way too many times.
2: Can you hear that too many times, John?
1: Yes. Yes, you can.
2: I have a theory about this. Don't don't stop me now. Here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I used to like a lot of s- shitty music. And like I mentioned earlier, I was fortunate to meet people that had very good taste and kind of brought me out of that kind of repetitive nature of life into a new world. And there are songs that I think I still would like today if I wasn't forced to hear them so much. Let me explain a little bit. So we're all familiar with the song, I fucking love this. Before I say what song it is, I really want to say, I'll be honest. When I was a kid, this song, I was like, what, 14 when it came out. I fucking couldn't get enough of this song. I love this song. I bought the album. I don't think I listened to anything on the album except this one song. I loved it so much. I did. It's embarrassing as it may be. And that song is Everybody's Working for the Weekend by Loverboy. (laughs) I love that song. But today, 40 plus years later, (laughs) if I had known back then that I was going to be forced to listen to that song every fucking Friday for the next 40 fucking years, I would not have been enthusiastic about it. <laughs> I can't, I hate that song so much. I don't even like, like Zeppelin's top five anymore because every fucking pre-programmed station in America has a get the lead out program where they play the same five Zeppelin songs, the same five ACDC songs, the same five Tom Petty songs. And it, it's fucking old, man. It was old 30 years ago. You know what I mean? And there's so much good music that came out of that same time they're not listened to. If I hear Lawyers in Love by Jackson Brown, I lose my shit. I fucking love that song. But we don't hear it. And that's what's the great, that's the great thing about it. You never hear it. No, it hasn't been overplayed. And that's the problem. And it, yeah, Lawyers it Jackson Brown's great, dude. But run right on them, fuck, man. Fuck that song so <laughs> they hadn't used had Add the Tiger
3: for every Like sports montage in every movie ever made I I might not hate that song as much Although it's It's an objectively terrible song But It wasn't helped by the fact that It was just over
2: When and that song was, came out in that Rocky 3 Or whatever it was People lost their fucking minds People loved that band
3: I lo- I lost my mind I could be excused I was like nine All right Nine year olds Held accountable For the taste of music I loved that song We played it on repeat Yes yeah. And then like You I was Then I, of course I'm subjected to it For the next 40 years. Right. And I'm like, dear God, I don't want to hear that da, da, da anymore, man. You can do something better. <laughs> you can, yeah. And I think that,
2: you know, that's just a symptom. It's, it's a weird thing to me too. I guess a lot of people are exposed to a lot better music nowadays, but the radio that is played in every workplace across America would not indicate this is so, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like people listen to Omar Suleiman and Balinese music and great fucking weirdo, psych, post-punk, fucking shit all the time. But when they go to work, they got to listen to the fucking devil went down to Georgia.
1: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> God <laughs> well, have mercy I, I, you're So well, it, Honestly, one of the best things that ever happened to me at work was I can't wear an AirPod anymore after we're closed. So I have to wear a little Bluetooth speaker. So you know what? You're going to listen to my Habibi funk. Fuck yeah, dude. Sorry. You're gonna listen to it. You're gonna hear Secret Chiefs Three and deal with it. Yeah,
2: that's the funny thing. And that's the funny (laughs) thing, though, right? Like Secret Chiefs Three. If you play that shit for people, they'll be like, a a good rock fan will be like, "What what is this? What are you listening to right now?" A good person that knows good music, they haven't been exposed to it. But when you expose them, they're like, "Ha, I like that." And you're like, "Yeah, you do." (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because you have hey, taste. You, you Good have job. Taste, but you never sought it out. <laughs> That's the thing. A lot of people have taste and a capacity yeah. for better things, but it's what they choose, right? Right, right. Well, like you, I had I have people
3: in my life who have excellent musical taste, and I was very fortunate for them to, you know, actually one of the ones that 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 surprised the hell out of me was my son, and he's twenty three now. But by, when he was about seventeen, man, his musical tastes were out there, and I'm so I started going, okay, dude, what, what are we listening to today? What do you got going on? He's and he's naming off bands I've never heard of, and I'm like, all right, we're going to shows together. We're looking, you know, we're going to concerts and buying records. And I'm like, man, I love, love that 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 twenty something year old guys out there listening to music I've never heard of. So it continues on. Don't you know? We don't have to it for the future. The kids are still doing
2: it, right? And I think David Bowie has a very famous quote once too, where he said, "I don't listen to my contemporaries." He's like, I don't dislike, you know, Robert Plant or any of those people. That I'm actually friends with a lot of my people from my generation, but I don't listen to their music. He's like, I sneak into clubs, I sneak into bars, I sneak in the back because I have to, and I listen to the young bands. And I think one of the last ones that I remember David Bowie talking about, there's a clip of him, he's like, have you heard this King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard? Oh my god, they're amazing. (laughs) And that, I mean, that's a sign right there of how important it is to continue to listen for the stuff that the kids are listening to, because they're right. The kids are fucking right, man. They're listening to the best music. We're listening to fuck a lover boy over here.
3: But <laughs> well, to be fair, we're all working for the weekend. So that's that. at least it's true. At least it's not much. Bon
2: oh God, don't even get me started. Living on a prayer. Every wedding, yeah. Mercy. Every wedding you're gonna go to, you're like, it's gonna happen. It's just gonna happen. I need another daiquiri because it's gonna happen and I'm gonna be pissed. Someone's working on a dock. Somewhere. Someone's always working on a dock somewhere. <laughs> but they should be they should be doing, you know, old uh dock worker uh sea shanties you know exactly yeah i fucking love sea shanties
1: so my late my latest artist that i'm listening to is a transgender native american hip-hop artist named bobby sanchez so check him out bobby sanchez it is i'll check it out i'm listening to this band called um called uh u have you heard of
3: them no I, I think they're gonna really blow up no i don't think so <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> i kid i'm a kidder but man well dude awesome what a pleasure yeah. And it it is always fun talking to someone who feels like a kindred spirit of sorts. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for the book. Yeah, of course. Uh, we're gonna link to your stuff. We're, y'all, y'all go buy it. Y'all go buy a book, man. Railside Bottom. This is uh, his book, Ridiculous and Ill Advised. Tremendous title. Buy it just for the cover art, man. Holy macro, but no, the, uh, the 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 stuff inside is is awesome as well. And I appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.